Tonight we begin in Matthew chapter 15, and of course we're continuing on in the context from the previous chapters in Matthew, where we saw an increasing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders from among the Jews. This tension just gets more and more intense through the Gospel of Matthew, of course, until it results in the Jewish religious leaders turning Jesus over to the Romans for his crucifixion. And so we'll notice this theme uh, amplifying even more through this chapter as we begin now, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, uh, up to this point, most of Jesus' ministry has been in the region of Galilee, right? Not down south in Judea in Jerusalem, but up in the northern area of Galilee. Now, since Galilee was separate, the Jews who lived in Judea and especially in Jerusalem tended to look down upon the Jews who lived in Galilee. They thought they were less spiritual. They, they thought they were less serious about their faith because they felt if you were really serious about your faith, you would live as close to Jerusalem and especially as close to the temple as you possibly could. So what we have here is we have a delegation of Jewish religious leaders coming and interviewing Jesus. They're checking him and his disciples out. It isn't the first time that this has happened in the Gospel of Matthew, but here the conflict is going to be even more intense. And I want you to understand something. What they were doing was not necessarily bad. It was not a bad idea for the religious leaders among the Jews to say, hey, there's this very popular teacher named Jesus in the region of Galilee. He's gaining quite a following. We should check him out. No, no, it wasn't their instinct to want to check him out or to evaluate him that was bad. What was bad was that they didn't judge him rightly when they had the opportunity. And you can notice this from the question that they ask in verse 2. They say, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? And I want you to notice right there in the way that's phrased. The ceremonial washings that the disciples did not do were commanded by tradition, They were not commanded by scripture. Now, I don't know if you've ever visited Israel, if you've ever visited Jerusalem, but if you've visited Jerusalem and go into a restaurant or you go into a hotel, you'll notice all the time, if you keep your eyes open for it, there'll always be a little sink with a pitcher of water and something off to the side. And it's the place where observant Jews can go and perform the ceremonial washings before they eat food. And this was a commandment upon every ceremonially observant Jew, but, but, but it was not a commandment based on Scripture. It was a commandment based on, look at the phrase in verse 2, the tradition of the elders. Now, this is what you need to understand about this tradition of the elders. It was not the tradition of living elders. In other words, there wasn't a group of elders in Jerusalem who gave forth this tradition. No, no, no. This was the tradition of dead elders. This was the tradition of men long ago who had laid down this idea that before any observant Jew could eat food, he had to undergo these ceremonial washings. As it says there in verse 2, they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, let's make it very clear. It's a good thing to wash your hands before you eat your food. 
It's good basic hygiene, right? And don't we tell that to our children, and we tell it to our Bible college students all the time, especially when, you know, maybe there's some sickness going around until you wash your hands before you eat. Wash your hands a lot. But this had nothing to do with good hygiene. The religious officials were offended because the disciples did not observe the rigid, extensive ritual for washing that was held before meals. And by the way, I should tell you, that many ancient Jews took this tradition of the elders very seriously. For example, there was one ancient rabbi who said this. He said, he sins as much who eats with unwashed hands as he who lies with a prostitute. He's saying that's just a serious sin. It's just as serious sin to eat with unwashed hands as it is to go out and lay with a prostitute. And they took these traditions of the elders very, very seriously. Now, verse 3, Jesus, he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? I find this very interesting because Jesus did not answer the question of the Pharisees or of these uh, uh, people who were questioning him, right? He, he didn't answer the question, why do your disciples not observe the ceremonial washings? Jesus answered back with another question. He said, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? When the disciples were accused of sin, Jesus answered with an accusation. And Jesus was so strong in his reply because the leaders were far too concerned with these ceremonial trivialities. When they declared that people were unclean because of their tradition, they denied people access to God. That's what it was to be ceremonially unclean. If I were to say, okay, you are unclean because you didn't observe the tradition of the elders and washing your hands properly before you ate. You have to go through another whole ceremony before you can be admitted to the congregation of worship of God's people. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm putting a big obstacle between you and God. I'm saying you can't come to God unless you go through this. And Jesus was very angry at this. This brought the very strong reply from Jesus. And so he says, listen, you have no right to institute this tradition that goes over the commandment of God. And again, Jesus emphasizes the idea in verse 3 that the elders base this on their tradition. It's important to see that the religious leaders demanded these ceremonial washings based on tradition, not upon the scriptures. Now, verse 4, Jesus is going to give an example here of how their traditions dishonored God. He says here, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. What Jesus here is referring to one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. And the clear command of God said that everybody should give honor to their father and mother. Now, by the way, this is sometimes a very difficult thing for people to understand as they grow older. They, they think, well, what do I owe to my parents as I grow older, as I'm adult? And I would best phrase it this way. You always owe honor to your father and mother. 
Now, when you're an adult, when you're no longer in their home, when you're no longer under their authority, you don't owe obedience to your father or mother, but you do owe honor. And so there's a sense in which your father and mother, they don't have the right to interfere in your life, right, to command you what to do if you're an adult and if you can do your own thing, if you're supporting yourself, you're not living in their home. But if you are under, excuse me, you're under your own authority, you still owe them honor. And this is how the Jews were getting around this, or at least some of them in Jesus' day. They had a system where it says, whatever prophet, verse 5, you might have received from me as a gift to God. See, this was a way that they got around the commandment to honor your father and mother. If they declared that all of their possessions or all of their savings were really a gift to God, really dedicated specially to him, then they could say, sorry, mom. Sorry, Dad, it's not available to you because it's given over to God. And this was a very convenient way to say, Mom and Dad, you can't have my money. It's mine, but I've specially dedicated to God, so I can't give it to you. Now, again, what Jesus points out about this is very clear in verse 6. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You see, through this trick, Someone could completely disobey the command to honor his father and mother. And all the while they're doing it, they're being super religious, right? Oh, I've given everything to God so that I can't help you, mom and dad. And that's it is. They're actually finding a very spiritually sounding way to disobey the commandment of God. And that's why Jesus says it in such strength in verse 7. Did you notice this? Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now this was true of the religious leaders. They honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. Jesus confronted them and quoted this passage from the book of Isaiah to them. But couldn't you say it's also sometimes true of us? We can appear to draw near to God all the while our heart is far, far from him. You, you go to a group of believers and they're, they're singing worship songs and, and your, your heart isn't close to God at all, but you think, well, people are looking at me. I have to look like I'm worshipful. And so you try to put that worshipful look on your face. You try to have that worshipful posture. You know, you're just concerned about how you look to people. But you're not thinking about God. You're not honoring him. Your, your mind's on a hundred other things, but it's not upon God. This is us very much sometimes. You see, it's easy to want and to be impressed by the image of being near to God without actually coming near to God in our heart. God is interested on the internal and the real. Now, now, God is also concerned with the external. It's not like the external doesn't matter. But if the external is given all the attention at the expense of the internal, well, then it's vain, just as Jesus said. We have to take care that our relationship with God is real on the inside and not just real by the way it appears. 
The, the other thing I want you to notice about these verses is what Jesus said, quoting from Isaiah in verse 9. By the way, this is a rather free quotation that Jesus made from the Septuagint. It, it's not exactly quoting it word for word. He's just giving sort of a very much a paraphrase of this quotation of Isaiah. But this is what he says. He says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, this quotation from Isaiah accurately described the real problem with these religious leaders. They lifted up man's traditions to be at an equal level to God's word. I don't want to uh, be real critical against other Christian movements or such like that, but I have to say this is a common problem even to our day, is it not? I mean, if you want to think in a very official sense, this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Roman Catholic Church says that there are two equal and binding sources of authority, the word of God and the tradition of the church. And to that I would say, and I trust Jesus would say, no, no, a thousand times no. You can never put the tradition of the church on an equal level with the commandments of God. Now look, I'm not here to say that the traditions of the church mean nothing. Of course they mean something. And of course they should be understood and sometimes honored and sometimes obeyed. But to put them on the same level as the eternal word of God seems to me to be utterly foolish and against what Jesus said here. I want you to notice carefully what Jesus said and what he did not say. Jesus did not say all traditions are bad. Did he say that? No. I have to say, sometimes, look, and you know me, I mean, I grew up as a Christian at the very tail end of the Jesus movement, you know, the hippie, rebellious days. I just sort of caught the very tail end of that thing. And good heavens, I come from Southern California, you know? And so for me, I have by instinct this thing that says all traditions are bad. Forget traditions, you know, explode all your traditions. Forget your, now that's not good, right? Because, listen, you can't say that traditions are automatically bad. Some traditions are good. Some traditions need to be honored. Jesus didn't say all traditions are bad. And he did not say all traditions are good. But what he did was he compared traditions next to the word of God. And he said man's traditions are on a much lower level than the word of God. We can never make them equal. I think that the biggest trap that people fall into with traditions is simply to accept them without thinking, right? I mean, maybe a tradition's good. Maybe a tradition should be, maybe a tradition should be revived. Maybe there's a tradition that the church or a group of Christians used to practice 100 or 200 or 500 years ago, and it would be wonderful and meaningful for today, but it shouldn't be adopted just because it's a tradition. It should be prayerfully and thoughtfully adopted, I believe that sometimes the Spirit of God can move mightily through such things, but again, never, never on the same level as the Word of God. Now notice here as Jesus continues on in verse 10, Jesus is done speaking to the Pharisees. So he says, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. You see, having dealt with the religious leaders, now Jesus is going to instruct the common people about authentic godliness. He's talking to everybody. Now, I need to remind you of something here. We're told here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 
that it was the Pharisees who came and questioned Jesus about this. We need to understand what a Pharisee was in the psychology of that day and age. A Pharisee who was somebody who was both greatly honored for his real piousness. I mean, people looked at Pharisees and they said, this is a man totally sold out to honoring God. Because that's how the Pharisees were. They were committed to 100%, if you could say, 1,000% obedience. So they had a honoring of the Pharisees, but they also had a fear and a resentment of them. Because while on the outside, the Pharisee looked like a man who was super obedient and super observant of God's word, Yet on the inside, many of them were hypocrites. And listen, you know how people are, right? People can smell hypocrisy. People can smell religious oppression. And so there was this strange, you might say, love-hate relationship between the common people and the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, Sometimes they loved them, admired them for their great spiritual commitment. But other times, they felt rightfully very oppressed by these people. So Jesus says, listen, I'm not talking to the Pharisees. I'm not talking to the religious leaders. I'm calling the multitude to myself. And this is what he said. He says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. That's in verse 11. Jesus here is stating a fundamental principle. Washing with ceremonially unclean hands or any such thing like that, that is not defiling, at least not in a spiritual sense. Rather, what comes out of us is what defiles, and it reveals whether or not we have unclean or defiled hearts. Now listen, this is not to say that there are not defiling things that we can take into ourselves. I think of one example of this might be pornography, right? That is something that would go into a person, at least mentally, and it's defiling. But in this specific context, Jesus spoke about ceremonial cleanliness in regard to food, which was a huge issue For the Jews of his day. Did you know that one of the big reasons why a Jew of Jesus' time, at least a seriously religious observant Jew, would never enter into the home of a Gentile was mostly because of kosher food regulations. And they thought that they would be polluted by it. The whole thing of kosher food regulations was a huge obstacle between bringing Jew and Gentile together in the world that Jesus lived in. And right now, Jesus is anticipating something that would come to fruition later on in the church, and that would be that under the new covenant, all food is declared kosher. That's what it is. In Acts chapter 10, in that whole great vision that Peter had, God says that food is now declared to be kosher, that no longer God is going to make that judgment. I'll tell you, this is a very impressive thing. One commentator says this. He says that the principles set out by Jesus right here in Matthew 15, 11, and later on in the chapter, made the ultimate abandonment of the Old Testament food laws by the church inevitable. This whole principle, that it isn't the food I put into my mouth that makes me unclean. No, it's what comes out of my mouth. It's the lies. It's the slander. It's the hatred. It's all the sin that comes out of me. That's what defiles a person, and that's what reveals any corruption that might be in my heart. Verse 12, 
Then his disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? (laughs) I love that from the disciples. Jesus, don't you know? You hurt their feelings. They're very angry with you, Jesus. Anyway, the disciples said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Again, it's sort of a humorous scene that the disciples came to Jesus, and they say something like this, Jesus, did you know that you offended those guys? And of course Jesus knew that he offended them. You might say he intended to offend them. And this is what he says in verse 13, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted, will be uprooted. This applies directly to those religious leaders and everybody who's like them. The commandments of men will not last because they're not rooted either in God or in his truth. He says, listen, God's going to take care of these guys. You've got to watch out because those things that are not founded, if you want to say, in the soil of God's commandments, will not last. And this principle should make us examine ourselves to see if we are like the Pharisees in making traditions commandments. It's kind of funny for me to be saying that. I come from a church movement, right? Calvary Chapel, which which is supposed to be so untraditional. But listen, Calvary Chapel has its traditions, does it not? They're sort of unspoken I heard a guy describe it like this. He called it the California liturgy, is what he called it. Where you get up there, you, 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 you have, you, you know, it's always a guy on a guitar. It just has to be a guy on a guitar for some reason. And he plays a few songs, and then you have announcements, and then you have some more songs, and then you have a sermon, and then you have a song at the end. It's California liturgy. That's just how you have to do it. Well, listen, you got to say that that's sort of a tradition. Now, is there anything wrong with that tradition? No, I think it's okay. But let's not kid ourselves. If that were to be made the measure of God's truth, you have to do a service like this or it displeases the Lord, that would be wrong. And I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, here then, we find the test of all human teaching, however well-intentioned, if it's not based on and rooted in the word of God, or if it departs in any degree from the true intention of that word, then it's to be rooted up. By this test, we need ever to try our traditions, customs, habits, rules, and regulations. It's true. We all have our traditions. We all have our customs. I think the important thing is to not accept them without thinking, without a a reliance on the Spirit of God. Notice what Jesus said. I find this really remarkable, what Jesus said in verse 14. He said, let them alone. That's what he said to to the disciples. He didn't say, hey, let's start an anti-scribe and Pharisee committee. He said, listen, their efforts are going to fail under the weight of their own legalism. Leave them alone, as he says in verse 14, they are blind leaders of the blind and both will fall into a ditch. I have a sense, and you know, this is one of the points in the Gospels where I really wish I could have heard the words come from the mouth of Jesus. 
Because in my imagination, I've got to confess, it's nothing more than my imagination. But in my imagination, I sense that Jesus said this with sadness. He wasn't happy about it. He wasn't happy that it was the blind leading the blind, and they're both going to fall into the ditch. No, he's sad, and perhaps he's even more sad for those who are led by the blind than he is by those blind leaders themselves. And so he was sad. He was sorry about this. And in these words of Jesus, I would say that we see the guilt. We see the guilt of those who are the blind leaders of the blind, right? Isn't that something that that just sort of invites some kind of judgment or discipline from God to be a blind leader of other people? But let's say also, is there not a responsibility upon followers to make sure that they are not following blind leaders? The, the, the person who's following a blind leader, they also have responsibility. And so this is what needs to be considered. Verse 15. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Now, the disciples didn't really understand what Jesus was getting at in the previous verses, and so he explains it all over again. Verse 18, he says, Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and that's what defiles a man. Jesus here is amplifying the point he first made back in verse 11, where he said that we're defiled from the inside out, rather from the outside in. And this is especially true of ceremonial things like foods. You see, Jesus boldly said that these evil things come from our innermost natures. Did you see that in verse 18? Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Now, he didn't mean your literal beating heart, right? He meant your innermost being, your spiritual essence, who you really are on the inside. And I'm going to tell you, do you see what Jesus said here? He said that those evil things come from the innermost being of who you really are. Now, I usually don't want to believe that. When I do something bad, when I do something evil, I want to say, well, that was just a mistake. That's not really who I am. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Out of your innermost being, that's where these things come. It it reveals how fallen and how corrupt we really are. And so murders, they, they don't begin with the man who has the knife or the man who has the gun. They begin with the hatred in the soul. Adulteries and fornications, they're first considered in the mind and in the corrupt heart before they're ever enacted by a person's body. I like what Spurgeon said. He said that the heart is the cage where these unclean birds fly forth from. And sad to say that many people who worry 
about external habits, what they eat and what they drink and other such things. They should care more about the words that come out of their mouth. They do more against God and against his people by what they say than by what they eat or drink. But he says here very plainly in verse 20, but to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man. Unfortunately, the emphasis of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and often around, it's purely on these external things, not in the internal things that make for true righteousness. Going on now to verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I just want you to stop for a minute and look at that verse again. Jesus departed from there. Okay, he he just had this big conflict with the Pharisees, right? And they're really going after core issues. What defiles a man? How is a man pure before God? Core issues Jesus was was, uh, addressing with these Pharisees that came to him. And after that conflict, what does Jesus do? He says, well, I've got to go on a business trip. And where does he go? Well, he goes north, because it's approximately north from Galilee, And he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, what do you know about Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities, maybe some 80 kilometers away from the region of Galilee. Jesus went all this way, and as you're going to see, as far as we know, he met one Gentile woman and ministered to his needs. But this is what I want you to see. In the midst of this increasingly severe conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders, what does he do? He pauses his ministry in Galilee, and he says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that almost a foreshadowing of what the Apostle Paul and many others would do later on in the book of Acts? When they would go into a city, they would first preach the gospel to the Jews. They would preach in the synagogue. They would get the gospel out the best they could. But when opposition came against them from the Jewish leaders, they said, fine, now we'll take it to the Gentiles. We have the feel of the same kind of thing. Just go, okay, the the Jews don't want to receive what I'm saying. Okay, great. I'm going to go minister to a Gentile woman in Tyre and Sidon. And by the way, notice this, verse 21 again. Then Jesus went out from there, departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, I love what Matthew calls this lady. He he calls this lady a woman of Canaan. Now, in in, uh, Matthew's day, uh, the, the Canaanites were ancient history, right? This was hundreds or thousands of years before. It would be as if in modern history somebody says, well, you know, I, I met with one of those uh, Visigoths the other day or something like that. It's like some long ago. I mean, the memory of those people are there, but they haven't been around forever. But Matthew says, no, she's a descendant of the Canaanites. What he's trying to emphasize is this is a woman who's not an Israelite. She's outside of the covenant people. And Jesus, in a very unlikely way, went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. By the way, we have evidence from the ancient Jewish historian Josephus that the Phoenicians and the Tyres had very bad feelings towards the Jewish people. Yet Jesus went there. And when he went there, he met this woman who said, verse 22, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. You're going to see that this woman 
is a remarkable example of intercessory prayer. She has come to pray for her daughter, to intercede on her behalf. It's not the woman's need directly, it's her daughter's need. But, but, but the woman has made her daughter's need her own need, like any good parent would. She comes to Jesus and she says, did you notice the great phrase in verse 22? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. This Gentile woman also understood who Jesus was. Many of Jesus' own countrymen didn't know who he was, but this woman of Canaan knew. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus had healed Gentiles. Back in Matthew chapter 4, we had an example of Jesus healing a Gentile, and in Matthew chapter 8, we had an example. (laughs) Yet what made this encounter unique is that in the earlier instances where Jesus healed a Gentile, the Gentile came to him. In this occasion, Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon to keep an appointment with this woman. I don't think it was an appointment she knew she was going to have, but I believe Jesus knew. So how does he handle this? Verse 23. But he answered her not a word. Maybe we should just stop right there. Isn't that strange? This woman, Gentile woman, comes to Jesus begging. We can imagine the tears rolling down her face. She's so serious. This is her daughter's life that's at stake. Her daughter is demon-possessed. Jesus, you have to do something for me. And what's Jesus' response? Nothing. He answered her not a word. Jesus did not give her an encouraging reply. He was, and it's a great word, he was reticent. He held back. There was nothing in him that invited her to, to pursue more. And his reticence drew a more energetic and faith-filled response from this Gentile woman. I like what Augustine said about this. He said, the word spoke not a word. And that was very unlike Jesus, don't you think? He was always very ready to respond to people in their time of need. But not this time. He says, no, I'm not going to say anything. So again, verse 23. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. Again, I find that very funny, too. You know what's likely here? Likely, what the disciples meant by this was send her away by giving her what she wants. It's entirely possible that they just wanted to, Jesus, would you fix this problem? This woman's annoying us. Give her what she wants and get her out of our head. And that's exactly what the disciples wanted. They, they really weren't interested in helping the woman. They were interested in just sort of getting rid of her. Now, the old Puritan commentator, Matthew Poole, he observed that some Roman Catholics look to this as an example of bringing prayers to the saints. You know, that the disciples were interceding on the woman's behalf. Send her away, for she cries out after us. But, but I don't think this would be a very good example of it, because the disciples just seem irritated, right? This isn't a great example of the saints helping somebody out. Okay, Jesus' reply here, verse 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here, Jesus defined the focus of his mission, both to his irritated disciples and to the Gentile woman. You can see Jesus saying this both to the disciples and to the woman. He goes, hey, listen, I know you want my help, dear woman. I know your disciples just want me to get rid of her. But you better understand 
I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was not sent to Gentiles like her. Listen, you've got to admit, wouldn't there be many, many people who would just give up? You come to Jesus with your request, and what's his first response? Nothing. He says nothing to you. It's like the heavens are silent. And the second response from Jesus is discouraging. You know, I really wasn't sent to help people like you. How many people would at that point just say, all right, whatever, Jesus, and walk away, but not this woman. Verse 25, it says, Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And then he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. (laughs) This is amazing. She comes, she worships Jesus. This woman seems to be doing everything right. And she says, Lord, help me. Please, Jesus, just help me. Help my daughter. By the way, I love what she says. She says, Jesus, help me. Right? Her daughter's need had become her own. And might I say that that's one of the keys to effective intercession. If you want to be an effective person in intercessory prayer, you take that other person's need and you plead it as if it were your own. It wasn't, Lord, help my daughter. It was, Lord, help me. And then what did Jesus say? He said again, it's so bold in verse 26. He answered and said, it is not good to take the little children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. All right. If you or I or most anybody was the woman who heard this, we would say, forget it, Jesus. Okay, I come to you. I say the right things. I I, I say, listen, Lord, son of David, I say the right things. And you know what? You ignore me. And then I I am more insistent. And you look me in the face and you say, sorry, I wasn't sent to help you. And then I ask you again with more passion, Jesus, please help me. And then you call me a little dog and say that I'm not fit to receive what you have to give. It's remarkable. It's remarkable for two things. It's remarkable, first of all, for how Jesus continued to say discouraging things to the woman. Although I have to say, this was not quite as severe as it might sound to our ears. When Jesus called this woman one of the little dogs, he used little as a term of endearment, right? You know how you can do that with a word. This is what Jesus did. He, he, he said little dogs in a way that was more endearing. Now you have to understand in that culture, dogs were not commonly pets. That was a culture in which dogs were reviled. To call somebody a dog was a bad insult. And so what Jesus did was he takes this insult, by the way, an insult that Jewish people often applied to Gentiles, and he softened it a little bit. I'm not saying that it wasn't harsh. It was still harsh, but it was softened a little bit. And he says, it's not right to give what belongs to the children to the little dogs. I have to say, We are at, again, the great disadvantage of not hearing the tone of Jesus' voice as he spoke to this woman. I I believe that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a great big DVD lending library or better technology from that. It'll probably be video on demand or something like that, where you can actually see what happened with these biblical scenes. In my mind, it would not be heaven unless such things were revealed to us. 
And one of the things I want to look is I want to listen to the tone of Jesus' voice as he interacted with this woman. <laughs> but for some reason, and I can't say with any certainty, but for some reason, I think that Jesus was not harsh in his tone. That, that his words were harsh, I'll admit it. But that his tone was almost inviting. C- come on, lady, because she responds by coming right back at Jesus. Notice what she says here in verse 27. It, it, it's crazy almost. Verse 27, and she said, True, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. That's an amazing reply of faith. The, the woman admitted her lowest. Okay, Jesus, you say I'm a dog? Great. Okay, fine, I'm a dog. You say that the food goes to the children? Great, give the food to the children. But you know what? The kids drop some crumbs that they don't want. And the dogs get to eat that. Can I have some of the crumbs? She did not demand to be seen as a child. She just said, okay, Jesus, bless me as a dog. And so she received from Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, if you notice there in verse 28, then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. It was as if the woman said this, Jesus, I understand that the primary focus of your ministry is to the Jews, that they have a special place in God's redemptive plan. Yet I also understand that your ministry extends beyond the Jewish people, and I want to be part of that extended blessing. I'm not one of the children at the table. I'm just a dog under the table. But even the dogs get some of the crumbs that the children don't want. Might I say that her response is especially meaningful in light of the increasing rejection of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. It was as if the woman said this, I'm not asking for the portion that belongs to the children. I'm just asking for the crumbs that they don't want. And in the flow of Matthew's gospel, there's more and more crumbs that the children didn't want, right? So she's, okay, great, I'll take what they don't want. And those were some wonderfully faith-filled words. Yes, Lord, yet even. Okay, you say this is what I am, Jesus. Okay, great, but then I will take it. And that's why Jesus said to her, verse 28, great is your faith. You know, I don't know of another, there may be another place, but I can't immediately think of another place in the Gospels where Jesus ever said that to a Jewish person. But he says to this Gentile woman in Tyre and Sidon that he went 80 kilometers to go see, great is your faith. Do, do you understand that we read of nothing else that Jesus did during his time in Tyre and Sidon? His only divine appointment was to meet the need of this woman of faith and to have her sick daughter. It's amazing. I just picture the scene in my mind. Jesus goes, he has this encounter with the woman, and then Jesus looks, I don't know, at the hourglass on his wrist or something, and he says to himself, okay, we did that, let's go back. (laughs) Well, we just went 80 kilometers. Jesus, should we stay here a few days? Nope, we came here to meet with this woman. Now we can go back. And that's what he does. He comes back here into the region of Galilee, verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. 
So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, there is something very interesting about verses 29 through 31, and this is it. Where was this at the Sea of Galilee? Look at what it says in verse 29. Jesus departed from there. Okay, so he's up north in Tyre and Sidon. He's coming back down south and a little bit uh, west, no, east, towards the area of Galilee. And then it says there that he skirted the Sea of Galilee and went down upon a mountain and sat down there. Now, where? When he skirted the Sea of Galilee... Was he on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee or was he on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee? You say, well, what big difference does that make? I'll tell you what, it makes a big difference. Because the western and northern shore of the Sea of Galilee was predominantly Jewish. The eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee was predominantly Gentile. And the best evidence that we have is that Jesus was now in predominantly Gentile territory ministering to these people. This crowd that he ministered to was probably a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, nothing like the crowd that he had before uh, ministering mainly on the western and northern side of the Sea of Galilee. You see, most commentators believe that this marks a unique period in the ministry of Jesus where he did his healing and providing work predominantly in the Gentile region of Galilee, especially when we correlate with Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, we see that this happened on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the region known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis were the 10 Roman cities. There were actually more than 10 Roman villages, but this was an area that was known for its Roman development. As well, in verse 33, later on in the chapter, it says that this happened in the wilderness, and that fits in better with the remote eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. G. Campbell Morgan says this, These people were most probably heathen or semi-heathen, gathered from the region of the Decapolis. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that Jesus apparently did this tremendous healing work and providing work among this predominantly Gentile multitude, and it shows that, in fact, the Gentiles are getting more than just a few crumbs from the table, right? When Jesus, let me read this again. Great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And he laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. If that's Gentiles, by the way, I really think it's Gentiles when you see that last phrase. You see what it says at the end of verse 31? They glorified what? the God of Israel. That makes even more sense if it's coming from a predominantly Gentile crowd. And so you see what's going on here. The Gentile dogs or little dogs or whatever you want to say, they're getting more than just a few crumbs from the table. There's another thing that's really remarkable about this. Verse 30, it says that they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. You saw that right there in verse 30. And then it says... Uh, later on, that some of those who he healed were the maimed. 
That's in verse 30. And then in verse 31, they saw the maimed made whole. Um, It's a very interesting ancient Greek word that's used there for maimed. It's not a common word in the Greek New Testament. It seems to mean, according to Matthew chapter 18, verse 8, mutilated. And there are some people who think that Jesus restored mutilated and lost limbs with these specific works of miracles. Again, it's not specific enough to tell us for certain, but it's certainly very interesting. The end result of it was in verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. Okay, now if that's not enough, look at it here, verse 32 to the end of the chapter, where it says, Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now listen, just a few chapters ago, we saw Jesus heal, or excuse me, feed the 5,000 miraculously. Now it's a similar situation. Not the same situation, but a similar one. Jesus doesn't want to send this multitude away hungry. And so he says, listen, what are we going to do? Now, I want to remind you, this is predominantly a Gentile crowd. And Jesus says, listen, verse 33, his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. And they commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks and he broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. It's important to see that this is not just a retelling of the previous feeding of the 5,000. This was a separate and unique miracle. I mean, after all, there's a lot of differences. Different numbers of people being fed, different locations, one on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, the other on the eastern side, different seasons of the year. In the first one, they mentioned them sitting on the grass. It seems that there was no grass this season of the year. There was a different supply of food at the beginning. There was a different number of baskets holding the leftovers. There's even a different ancient Greek word used for baskets in this account. And then there's a different period of time accounted for the people. But in other ways, it's similar. Jesus blesses the food, gives it to the disciples, and the disciples distribute it to the multitude. But I think the amazing thing here is that Jesus was taking care of Gentiles, or at least a mixed crowd. Let's say it was a mixed crowd of Jew and Gentile together. But Jesus was still caring for them and providing for them. So again, I think in Matthew chapter 15, we see an amazing panorama of Jesus' work, sort of a, a preview. You know how it is when you go to the movies and they have the trailer, the preview of the coming movies. Well, the, the, the coming movie would be when in the book of Acts, God would bring Jew and Gentile together into one body, the body of Christ. That was what was going to happen in the book of Acts. Jesus here is previewing this by feeding what was probably a mixed multitude, by healing a mixed multitude, by saying, I have more than just a few crumbs to give 
to the Gentiles. This, uh, this was going to be hard for some of the Jews to accept, but it was, ha- it was central to Jesus' ministry. One last thing. The way that the Messiah miraculously fed both Jews and Gentiles, you could say that it was a preview of the great messianic banquet. I mean, there he is. First, 5,000 Jews. Here, 4,000 of a mixed multitude, you could say, both Jews and Gentiles. By the way, isn't that worthy of, worthy of notice? I, I love this. The second number was less than the first. To me, that has such a ring of truthfulness about it. The first time Jesus fed 5,000, right? Plus women and children. This time he fed 4,000 plus women and children. No, that is so against human nature. Human nature is always to exaggerate statistics so that things seem to be getting better and better, right? Right? You, you, you would say, well, the crowd looks like it was uh, 5,000, even if it wasn't, right? Because you just felt like, well, you have to match what you've done before. That's human nature. But no, they're fine with saying, well, it was 5,000 this time, it's 4,000 this time. Nothing wrong with the ministry of Jesus. That's just how it was. But you see, what this was, was this was a preview of the great messianic banquet. This was in the mind of, of, of the ancient Jews, especially the ones who longed for the return of the Messiah. They looked forward to the time when the Messiah would return and they would have this great big feast with the Messiah. Now, what Matthew and what Jesus is telling us here is that Gentiles are also going to attend that messianic banquet. They're going to be there at the feast too. And I think this is what we have to do. We have to let Jesus decide who's going to be there at his feast. He knows, and and you have to take his word for it, not our own analysis. Well, let's pray. Father, We're grateful for your word here this evening. We're thankful, Lord, with how we see you working in power, Lord. And Father, it's often true that when one group rejects you or resists you, you'll go to a group who will receive you. And Lord, we just want to be numbered among those who will receive you. So guard us, God. Guard us from ever putting our traditions at an equal place with the word of God. Uh, Guard us, Lord, from being offended easily by strange things that you do, such as the way that you dealt with this Canaanite woman. Instead, Lord, keep us strong in faith and centered on who Jesus is and what he has spoken to us in his word. We love you and praise you this evening and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.